Welcome to this episode of MO Forum. We're joined by Bernard Keane of Crikey. G'day. Uh, and Bernard has been communicating his views about a couple of issues, uh, the direct action plan and climate change more generally, uh, and also this uh, debate about productivity growth in mm -hmm. Australia and the assertion that uh, it slumped under the previous government, but now it's going to be lifted uh, if some very tough measures are applied. So uh, I just wanted to welcome you, Bernard, to the Good to be here. Uh, MO Forum. Uh, this is really about progressive thinking and setting an agenda for people who uh, do want to create a better world and through a progressive line of thought. And that's um, why it's so great to have you here on MO Forum. So let's start with uh, climate change. I think now, uh, notwithstanding a few comments from former Prime Minister John Howard, there is pretty strong consensus that there is such a thing as human-induced climate change. There's a very strong consensus from the people who are, make a living from uh, examining the issue of climate change. I mean, this is the, this is the, the great flaw at the heart of the climate denialist uh, story which is that uh, somehow there is a, um, uh, there's a, uh, uh, either some form of conspiracy mm. or monumental incompetence on a global scale from the part of, uh, of, of climate scientists who, are, who have somehow got it wrong. Mm. That, uh, that the, you know, the basic physics of climate change um, and then the demonstrated impacts of uh, greenhouse emissions, not just carbon emissions, but greenhouse emissions on uh, on uh, worldwide temperatures, uh, climate scientists very strongly of the view that, uh, that that climate change is real, anthropogenic climate change is real. It's not just some natural cycle that we've just got to sit back and cop, um, and that uh, and that uh, adjusting our level of carbon emissions can actually have an impact. Now, you know, ultimately the 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 one of the points I like to make is that. Uh, Climate denialism ultimately defaults to conspiracy theory. Yes. You know, ultimately, the only rational argument you can come up with if you're a climate denialist is that all the evidence for climate change is uh, ultimately a, you know, a fabrication by uh, a very large conspiracy. I mean, elaborate, you know, very elaborate conspiracy. Very elaborate. You know, forget the killing of JFK. I mean, this mm. is, you know, we're talking about a global conspiracy involving thousands and thousands of people who are all in on it. Um, this is why that those emails from East Anglia University a few years ago were seized on with such yeah. such uh, a determination by climate denialists, because they tried to argue they were they were evidence of this uh, of this conspiracy. But you know, if if you are if you are in any way prudent, uh, then you know you 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 don't base public policy, you don't base investment decisions if you're a you know, if you're a business person on. You know, long shots and conspiracy theories. Yeah, you know, yeah. you base them on what is prudent, what is most likely. I mean, if I was a, you know, we, we, you know someone like Morris Newman, he's a who's a you know, eminent business figure, um, is a climate denialist. David Murray, ex head of the Future Fund, another climate denialist. There are a lot of people in the business sector who are climate denialists, and the basic question really for them is: Would you run a business based on? The logic that you're deploying about climate change, which is that it's a giant conspiracy rather than the result of uh, you know the, the consensus of the people who are actually experts in this area, you wouldn't you wouldn't 
uh, you wouldn't invest in a in a business on a long shot that it's not a conspiracy theory. Yeah. Um, yeah so no, that sort of that sort of prudential yeah, yeah. that sort of prudential logic seems to go missing from the climate denialist case. And and perhaps to extend that analogy, if someone is making an investment, you know, a monetary investment in the future, they don't wait until there is no uncertainty whatsoever before making that investment. Exactly. Um, you, you make it in the real world where there is some risk. Now, even those people who are sceptical about uh, human-induced climate change should be prudent, but also should not wait, you'd think, until the last scientist on Earth steps up and says, that's it, I'm, I'm finally convinced, because that last scientist will not step up. Well, there will always be, be someone. Always, there are people who believe that the, the, the moon landing is a fake. There are still people who believe the Earth's flat. I mean, there's, you're never going to get uh, absolute uh, consensus. That's not how science works anyway. Science doesn't work by... Uh, Proof. By you know, groupthink. Yeah. Science yeah. works by, by uh, hypotheses and, and, and trying to... And, and evidence. And in any event, we don't know the full range of uh, climate impacts. Yeah. So if we're assuming that there's going to be, be between a, a two and six degree warming, uh, globally between now and the end of the century. That's a range, that's an, that's an enormous range in itself. Mm. And that, that range encompasses an extraordinary variety of impacts on a country like Australia. Yeah. So planning climate or planning policy based on, on that itself is immensely problematic. You, you're not going to know the exact nature of, of the impacts and how, how is the environment going to react to it? What feedback loops are going to be created? So you can't create policy in perfect certainty. Mm. Uh, when it comes yep. to climate change, anyway, even if you know, even if uh, uh, even if you accept the science. All right. Well, here this would be another perspective of people who might accept the science of climate change, but then put this proposition. I'd be interested in your views to pick up your point. There, a lot of these impacts are already going to occur mm -hmm. because of the emissions that have been released in the atmosphere since the industrial revolution, but yep. most particularly in the last two or three decades. So based on that, if we can't fix it, we should adapt to it. That is, deploy um, adaptation strategies rather than mitigation strategies, uh, which would be um, improve our flood insurance arrangements, um, build higher uh, levies and so on. Uh, what do you say to that problem? Well, it's, there's, there's, there's a lot of good sense in that because we are going to have to do that. Mm. I mean, as as Policymakers are going to have to deal with the fact that there will be a level of climate change that's already happening and it's going to have impact. So we need to have both a mitigation and an adaptation strategy. Yeah. There's no point sort of saying, well, we can stop this, we can reverse it. Yeah. Because uh, climate change, even even on the most optimistic scenarios, is you know is is uh, is going to occur anyway. So we do need an adaptation strategy, um, and that means, and that, that's where the, again the climate denialist case, you know, gets very shaky because. Uh, uh, if you're running an insurance company, you know perfectly well that your uh, that your uh, financing over the next 20 years yeah. is going to be significantly affected by uh, by climate change, yeah, and your yeah. reinsurer will know that yeah. uh, very very well. So yes, adaptation is an important issue, but it can't be the only approach. I mean, ultimately, that's a kind of a let the planet burn yeah. approach, which is you know we'll just sit back and and continue to pump uh, 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 greenhouse emissions into the atmosphere. We'll just uh, accept whatever. Uh, consequences come uh, without really worrying about well, where does the prudential response mm. lie, and, and and then 
the, the prudential response is always going to be a mix of uh, mitigation and adaptation. Some forms of mitigation are very expensive and you wouldn't do them. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, Australia's got a history over the last 15 years of running greenhouse abatement programs, uh, um, uh, greenhouse abatement programs that are extraordinarily expensive. Mm. Um, so when you're making this sort of trade-off between adaptation and, and mitigation, one of those issues has got to be cost and adaptation uh, it has to be a, a significant part of that mix. Well, to continue the analogy, now you've got me thinking about this, the insurance company, uh, it will uh, itself and think, what can we do to reduce the risks of these um, catastrophic events occurring? So it's one thing to insure people, but having insured them, uh, there's an incentive on an insurance company to get people to put locks on their doors mm -hmm. um, to make sure that their houses uh, are reasonably well built, that the roof doesn't fly off very easily. So it seems to me that's an analogy with humanity. Mm -hmm. I mean, where we're custodians of the earth and we're trying to ensure again for future generations and nature itself mm -hmm. to say, well, look, we'll just adapt. We won't actually seek to reduce the risks mm. of climate change uh, goes against the market principles to which some of the people you mentioned readily subscribe. Particularly when the cost is actually relatively small. I mean, we've seen yeah. this with the, with the carbon price uh, in Australia. Now, that's, now, the extent to which it's driven uh, 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 the, the, the sort of plateauing of emissions that we've seen over the last sort of uh, 12 months uh, is unclear, but nonetheless, um, the, the cost of action in terms of mitigating emissions mm. is actually not that significant in, in, term, in terms of the overall economic impacts. Um, the problem is it goes up over time. The longer we wait, yeah. you know, the, 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 the higher the costs are going to be. And this is, this is the other issue that, that, uh, that uh, I think gets overlooked. At some point in the next, uh, I don't know, 50 years, Australia is going to have to decarbonise its economy. Um, and why do you say that? For the reason well, we well, discussed. Well, unless you assume that climate change is a, is a giant conspiracy, mm, uh, yeah. then, then we are going to have to significantly reduce the carbon intensity of our economy. Otherwise, uh, uh, the rest of the world is... Australia is one of the most carbon-intensive economies in the world. Yeah. We're up there with the oil shakedoms in terms of the emissions intensity of our economy, mm. mainly because of the way we produce power. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's other factors Great we can't... Power power exactly. Stations, there's there's yeah, other things. Load. There's things we can't do about anything about, like the fact that we're a big country with a small number of people. So yeah. our, our transport is emissions intensive. Yeah, yeah, I understand. Per, um, but it's because we rely so much on coal-fired power that we yeah. have this extraordinarily emissions intensive economy. At some point in the next sort of you know, 50 years, we're going to have to address that. And the longer we wait, yeah. the more expensive it will be. And the bigger the damage to our competitiveness, you would think at some and, point. And exactly. And, and if we leave it until the last minute, well, yeah. it's going to have a huge cost. It's going to be immensely disruptive. If we do it over an extended period, mm. then the costs are actually going to be relatively The transition small. costs uh, are, are low. Yeah. If, if you look at, for example, the, you know, look at the, the, CP, the impact on CPI of, um, of the carbon price. It's been almost negligible. Yeah, I think um, it was 0.7%. Well, that, that, was, that, was, that was a Treasury estimate, and yeah. I think it's actually come in just a, you know, a shade under the under, Treasury estimate. Yeah. So, um, and it's, it's, you know, that, that's, the impact has been uh, extraordinarily small, in fact. So, and also, yeah, also the, you talked about the um, emissions have fallen. They've actually fallen in the 
energy yep. sector. That's where you probably want them to, based on your your analysis, that we are um, probably unusual in the world in that we rely so heavily on coal-fired mm. power stations, uh, and that's actually where the reductions are occurring. So it's it, the carbon price is actually working, it seems to me. Well, the, the, we've, we've also had a kind of de facto carbon price even before the one that was introduced by the federal government, which was for years we had um, we had uh, power generators and particularly power transmission companies, um, mainly government-owned ones, uh, gold plating and over-engineering the network yeah. and charging consumers for it. That's what's driven this massive spike in, in, in electricity, and, and, electricity and prices, sustained yeah. spike in, yeah. in electricity prices. And that has actually caused a, a significant fall in consumer demand for electricity. People uh, have actually yeah. responded to the yeah. price signal. Just, it's not a price signal that's based on carbon pricing, it's a price signal based on the fact that we've got this um, inadequate regulatory framework for, yeah. for, for the electricity sector. Indeed. So we've had a de facto carbon price, which has actually caused people to cut uh, their electricity usage. Now, um, you know that's that's actually where you want it cut because you want to you want to drive the transition of the electricity generation sector to a more efficiency and then and b you know renewable or or less carbon. I, I think the figures are roughly that there's in the last you know, few years there's been a seventy percent average increase in electricity mm. prices, of which ten percent is carbon pricing the other 60 from this gold plating. And the reason for the gold plating over investment is that they get a guaranteed return on investment exactly. of 8.4%. Exactly. We have a regulatory framework that basically says to uh, to, to network owners, um, you can spend what you like and you can then go off and charge consumers the, the, the cost of it. And um, get an 8.4% return. And get a guaranteed rate of return. And there is, you know, it's only now that we're kind of moving to address the regulatory framework. but. Um, for a number of years, we've had a de facto carbon price, yeah. which, is, which has cut our, yeah, cut our emission. carbon emissions. So, you know, if you know if Greg Hunt is desperate for, for policy solutions, then one of the things you could do is just sabotage any efforts to actually reform the electricity market, because it is going to continue to, I suspect, put pressure on consumers to uh, to cut their electricity. And that eight point four percent return is riskless. Compare it with a return on U.S. Treasury bonds of zero point two five percent. Yep. If you're an investor, you don't need to be an investor who's an expert in electricity, in the oh. electricity industry. You just say, I've got a billion dollars, let's stick it in and get an 8.4% guaranteed return. Exactly. Because, because you can go out and you, a company can go and charge consumers that those prices are signed off by uh, the electricity yeah. pricing regulator. And, um, uh, you know, that's that's what the only, the only risk ultimately is consumers um, curb their usage. Yeah. Now, you mentioned uh, an alternative here, the direct action plan. Uh, to the extent that we understand it, there was a document that um, was uh, out before the election. You've controversially suggested that the government abandon that, the direct action plan. I thought you were concerned about climate change and wouldn't it be better to have a direct action plan to reduce emissions? Um, it'd be better to have a direct action plan if one actually worked. Um, if uh, it was actually going to drive a significant reduction in well, uh, significant reduction in our emissions, but more to the point, achieve the goal that both the, the, the current government and the previous government uh, say that they're committed to, which is a five percent reduction in our emissions by twenty twenty. Which, incidentally, as a deadline, is not very far away. No, um, it's a, it's it's a little bit closer than it used to be, as they say in the classics. So um, the um, 
the problem with direct action is it's at best an extraordinarily expensive way of uh, reducing carbon emissions. Uh, I referred earlier to the fact that, uh, that over the last 15 years, there's been a number of programs that uh, purchased uh, abatement at very, very expensive levels. Now, that's, direct action is really a continuation of those sort of programs uh, that were mainly run by the Howard government, a couple run by, by the Rudd government as well, in which the Australian National Audit Office found that they were buying abatement at uh, uh, the cost of several hundred dollars a tonne mm. in some cases. That was the, the outlier figure. The, the average cost was probably you know, in, in uh, you know, high double figures. But yeah. nonetheless, it was extraordinarily expensive compared to a carbon price. Yes. Um, now, direct action, to the extent that we understand it, will continue that. Uh, it, is, it will be a grants program. Uh, basically, uh, the government uh, buying abatement from uh, whoever is prepared to offer it um, in the same way that will, you know, procures uh, defence weaponry or, yeah. or uh, tenders for uh, building roads. Um, and it's riddled with problems. I mean, the, the, the biggest problem for me, and this is one that gets very little attention, is that um, if you were, or if you're a company that was already engaged in a significant energy efficiency program, for example, to reduce your emissions, why wouldn't you say, you butte, put your I, hand I, up. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go and tender for um, Greg Hunt's direct action plan. Um, so a lot of uh, abatement that was already going to happen, it will yeah, be funded. There won't be, so, so there's a real issue about what additional abatement yeah. will be funded by this. It will be bought, what abatement will be bought will be bought at a very expensive level. Um, and um, the, the, you know, the overall sense really for me, for, for this program has always been it's a fig leaf for the fact that the coalition doesn't really want to do anything about climate change. And if, if that's the case, why don't they just be intellectually sort of rigorous about it? And say $3.2 And say $3.2 billion, um, which they could redirect to. Uh, there's plenty of other you know, worthwhile policy mm. causes mm. That, uh, that could do with $3.2 billion. And that's, this is why Treasury, when, when, when I think it was Greg Combe, got them to cost or, or look, at, look at the effectiveness of direct action uh, said, well, it, it's only going to achieve a fraction of the 5%. So you're going to have to actually spend a whole lot more yeah. to buying, achieve the 5%. And, and I think that big balance was the, the whole lot more was to buy, this would be ineffective, and you'd have, if you're going to hit the 5% reduction, yep. you'd have to go and buy permits. But then they've ruled that out uh, from overseas, which the, and they well, ruled that out. Exactly. Either buy permits from overseas or, or increase the budget for the program. And, of course, if you increase the budget... What are you doing when you're procuring? Well, if you if you it means that you're going to go off and buy the the next most expensive uh, form of abatement. I mean, if you have buy, been buying based on lowest price, yes. then if you've got more money to spend, you're going to be spending more money up on the, uh, on, on more expensive ladder, forms yeah. of abatement. So it becomes even less efficient if you pump more money into it. This this is why Malcolm Turnbull, I think, very correctly said that this is a program. This is a program designed by people who don't believe in climate change, mm. because you know it's 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 easily wound up. Unlike a carbon price, you know, we're seeing we're going to see all sorts of problems with the repeal of the carbon price. This is a grants program that, that's easily wound up, uh, and as Malcolm Turnbull correctly said, uh, if it's if it's actually if you actually apply it seriously, it will have a big impact on the budget. Uh, and which right. so he quite he quite he quite uh, cleverly I thought anticipated yeah. the treasury analysis, yeah, which yeah. said this program is not yeah. sufficiently costed to um, an unresolved question in my mind about this direct action plan is 
while the government's over here busily buying permits from, uh, or paying, not mm. buying permits, but paying businesses to reduce their emissions, what's to stop other businesses from increasing theirs? Mm. And, and new businesses setting up and saying, well, why can't I admit? I admit. Exactly. And going off, and, you know, it, it wouldn't happen, but going off and building a new aluminium smelter, yeah. for, for example. Um, what's in, notionally designed to stop it is that the other component of the direct action plan is, is, is a baseline emissions mechanism by which if you exceed a level of emissions, then you will be fined. That sounds government. like a carbon tax. Sounds like a carbon tax. Uh, quite how it isn't a carbon tax uh, has not really been explained. In fact, the whole baseline emissions mechanism has not been explained. And I assume that in the forthcoming white paper, we'll, we'll start to see some details. But we don't even know, for example, is it a, uh, a net emissions baseline scheme or is it a emissions intensity baseline scheme? I.e., I if I expand my business, but the emissions intensity falls. falls. Are so my overall, my exempt, overall, uh, you know, yeah, exactly. So to, do I get fined because my emissions have gone up, or do I? I mean, How many businesses will be? Uh, this is the other significant issue because covered by this scheme of fines above a particular. The, the carbon price level. is only limited. The carbon price is limited to a, a, about five hundred odd firms. Might have been less in the end, mm. but anyway, no but more of, than of a certain yeah. level. Um, who's captured by this? I suppose we'll find this out uh, in the discussion paper. But the problem with that is that. If you, it must, I assume it must be an emissions intensity scheme because you have a, if you have a, a net emissions scheme, no business that produces emissions could grow. No. So clearly that's... That it, it would that's, exceed its baseline... Immediately. As soon as, immediately. As soon as it actually sort of in, increased its size in any way or increased mm. production, it would be in breach of the emissions. So it can't be, it can't be a sort of an overall emissions figure. It must be an emissions intensity scheme. How that's going to be measured, what the... Um, are we going to use the existing baselines for, for, for industry? Uh, are we going to have a sort of industry average or is it going to be a firm-based emissions? Mm. All these questions are, uh, well, maybe we'll find out. Former yeah. Treasury Secretary Ken Henry just a couple of weeks ago dis described this direct action uh, plan to the extent that people do understand it as bizarre. Mm. That, that you know, rather than setting up a market, you're doing the central planning mm. and allocating permits to businesses, um, but there's no real price on them because if there's no cap, there's no cap. then there's no price, no, exactly. except you're paying people this is, good this money. Is, <laughs> this, is the, this is the problem with the, the base. The baseline is designed to kind of act as a kind of a pseudo cap, but unless you actually make it you know, a very, very hard line mechanism, it's not going to function as a, as a cap at all. Yeah. I'll tell you an anecdote about this. Because um, this, this was cobbled together, the direct action was cobbled together by Greg Hunt after Malcolm Turnbull was rolled and replaced by Tony Abbott. And Tony Abbott basically said that we, we need a fig leaf for the fact that we don't want to do anything about climate change. And I'm assuming he didn't say that exactly, but that was, the, that, was the, that was what Greg Hunt was tasked to produce. And for a long time, Greg Hunt was focused on the issue of soil carbon, mm -hmm. which is this idea that you can get a lot of, it's what's called biosequestration, i.e. you can somehow plough carbon into the soil and keep it there. That's the crucial thing, not you can get yeah, carbon yeah. into the soil easily. Yeah, yeah. Keeping it there is the significant thing. He was very big on soil carbon. Uh, Lenore Taylor uh, memorably decided to christen direct action soil magic because it was so heavily dependent on, on soil carbon. Uh -huh. if, you look at the, in the, if you look at the original costing for this program, it was heavily based on, well, it, it was dependent on 60% uh, of the abatement. So 60% of that 5% goal. Yeah based on 8 to $10 a tonne of abated carbon. 
Mm. And the assumption from Greg Hunt back then was soil carbon was going to do that. Now, something very interesting that happened in, uh, in 2010, he went to a, a farm in Dan Tien's electorate, um, a, a, farm, a farmer who'd been doing a lot of soil carbon. This is in Victoria. In Victoria. Dan Tien, uh, uh, and, uh, and he met with a farmer who'd been doing a lot of soil carbon initiatives. And um, it all kind of came a cropper because, and this is recorded in the local paper, um, the, the farmer said to Greg Hunt, um, your cost, your eight to ten dollars is not going to be anywhere near enough to actually mm-hmm. encourage me to do more uh, soil carbon initiatives. Uh, and that actually makes sense because if you talk to experts in, in, the, in the sort of biosequestration area, they'll tell you at the very best, um, if you want to if you want to pursue soil carbon initiatives, you're going to get a maybe twenty to forty dollars a ton. That's the best guess, right. for which is way carbon, above the which is way above price. way above the eight to ten dollars, yeah. and, that and way are. above the global carbon price to which Australia exactly. would move in twenty fifteen. Exactly, exactly. So um, after that, interestingly, I don't know whether it was cause and effect, but it was certainly uh, um, it was certainly sort of uh, coincidental with it. Greg Hunt began talking about the whole scheme as a market mechanism, not winner picking, but a market mechanism. Uh, which is kind of like saying, well, if, if I go down to the shop and buy a milk, buy a bottle of milk, I've created a national milk market. You know, mm. it doesn't quite work that no. way. You don't create markets just like by, just buying by, going, by going and buying something, um, particularly when you've just dismantled. That's what they, which, <laughs> is what they, which is what they're planning to do. Um, but I mean, Greg Hunt's very sort of you know, determined to say this is a market mechanism because we're going out and kind of sourcing it from the market. Well, that's actually. I think Greg Hunt's a lawyer by training, so mm. uh, might, might reflect his, his sort of poor grasp of economics on that particular issue. But that was when it switched from being, you know, main, mainly about soil, soil magic right. to being about a market-based mechanism. Yeah. And, you know, it, it, arguably that's actually kind of sensible because the idea of the whole, you know, the idea of basing the whole thing on eight to ten dollars going out and buying soil carbon uh, from from farmers just wasn't even going to stand up. And of course, that's before you get to the problem that um, no one can actually guarantee that if you go and, if government goes and spends three billion bucks on soil carbon mm. over the next five years, in 20 years, all that carbon's going to come straight back out of the soil because it's a drought. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's no, there, there's ways of addressing is, that. Yeah. But, you know, there's risk-based ways of addressing that. It's not carbon capture and storage. But it's not, it ain't carbon yeah. capture and storage. You know, it's not sort of, you know, locked down in the, in the, in the bowels of the earth. It's in the soil. Uh, on, on, on a farm or in a, or in a tree that could be burnt out by a bushfire. So it sounds, it does sound a bit bizarre. I must say that they're going to destroy a market in order to create a market. That's and the great trading scheme. That's the great sort of. I think that's the really the you know the, the the great sort of policy tragedy of all this is that Australia's actually put in place a reasonably good. I'm, I'm not 100% happy with the with the policy mix that, that that the government with the Greens, then then government with the Greens and the Independents put together. But nonetheless, you know, it was better than the Kevin Rudd CPRS, and uh, it, I, I think, uh, you know, ultimately was going to drive, in the long term, mm. carbon abatement, and it did not have a significant economic impact. Yeah. The Australian economy is still one of the world's best economies. Why is still there? Why is still there? <laughs> well, as you, as you so, uh, as you so famously attested. So, um, you know, and yet now we've got a government that is simply going to destroy that market, mm. a, a functioning market, and um, you know. It, you know, I, I think it's no wonder other countries are going to look at Australia mm. and go, what on earth What's going on? are you doing? And, and this, um, I think, unfortunate discussion uh, is that this is a carbon tax and it's not an emissions trading scheme, which struck me 
is that the original carbon pollution reduction scheme was always regarded as an emissions trading scheme. It uh, had a fixed price fixed permit price. for one year. Yep. The Clean Energy Plan has a fixed price permit for three, three years. years, which would expire in 2015. Yep. One is called an emissions trading scheme, the other is called a carbon tax. Mm. And people don't like taxes, mm. so they say, yeah, down with the tax. Yeah, yeah. This emissions trading thing, well, we don't quite know what it is, mm. but that's not so bad. Mm. Well, this is an emissions yeah, well, trading scheme. Well, one of the things about the emissions tra emission trading scheme is no one, 99.9% well, of the population have no idea what an emissions yeah. trading scheme is. And I don't blame them. because no. they yeah, don't really yeah, exactly want to know. It's, 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 very, it's a very complex issue. But, but um, there's one thing certainly is that, you know, something you don't understand is better than something that you don't like. Yeah. Right? Which is a uh, which is a tax. tax yeah. So, and the roots of that, of course, go back to the fact that Labor never effectively addressed Tony Abbott's um, politically, in terms of political tactics, brilliant line: a great big new tax on everything. Mm. That mm. was never actually addressed yeah. by Labor. Yeah, and uh, and that's that's I think we're still seeing the consequences of that mm. years later. But we're told that the reason that this um, uh, scheme is being removed, the clean en clean energy scheme, the ETS, the carbon tax, whatever you like to call it, is to improve Australia's competitiveness because productivity growth in this country has slumped, mm. we're told, over the last five years after going very well before that. I know that on Twitter you've had something to say about this. Mm. Uh, what are the basic facts of the situation about productivity growth and competitiveness? Okay, the, the basic facts are that uh, Australia, like a lot of other Western countries, has been in a bit of a productivity hole now mm. for uh, over a decade. Yeah, um, We're certainly not Robinson Crusoe there. New Zealand, which is often held up as a free market nirvana, um, is, is, for example, has had very, very similar sort of productivity issues. Now, the, the, that's, that's actually been reflected across a range of it's been reflected in labour productivity and it's been reflected in uh, uh, the overall multi-factor productivity multi thing as well and, and capital productivity. Um, now, exactly what's been going on there, well, economists are still debating it. Mm. There's a number of things. In Australia, a lot of it's focused on the mining boom yeah. and the fact that um, you know our mining companies have been investing in a lot of less productive mines that are investing a lot of in, in capital and the returns from that haven't come through. But there's a number of explanations as to why there's been a long-term uh, uh, impact on, on productivity. But in Australia, something very interesting has happened in the last uh, last two years, which is that our labour labour productivity has actually increased significantly. And in fact, uh, most recently, I think it increased at the highest level for ten years. Yeah. So, uh, the Fair Work the Fair Work Act was, we were told by by conservatives and by business groups when it was brought in, would destroy jobs. Malcolm Turnbull actually said that it was going to destroy jobs, um, uh, and it was going to reduce productivity because it you know, imposed. You know, restrictive and kind of unflexible uh, provisions that, that prevented prevented employers from uh, operating flexibly. And of course, when they use the word flexibility, they mean flexibility to reduce wages, not yeah. to not to not, not to. Yeah, there's there's nothing. I've never actually heard of anyone explaining a, a, any sort of regulation that stops an employer from paying someone more. More. So the problem is not flexibility. Yeah, the plenty of flexibility go up, upwards. The problem is downwards. the flexibility go downwards. Um, but the result, the, the evidence has been that because Fair Work Act has now been in, been in for I think three years, is that it has overseen a or is a driven or we don't know what the causal relationship is, but certainly has coincided with a strong growth in labour productivity. Mm. Certainly far higher than what happened under, for example, work choices under the Howard government. Now, 
work, uh, pro labor productivity under work choices fell off a cliff. It, yeah. it fell, didn't go up, it fell. Yeah. Now, was that because of work choices or did it just coincide with it? Well, uh, there's an answer to that question. That answer is Treasury advised the then Treasurer, Wayne Swan, work choices is gonna reduce productivity. They actually told him that. And the reason why it reduces productivity or reduce productivity was because uh, if you lower wages and reduce conditions and uh, attack unions to stop them representing workers, you will bring into the workforce uh, people whose skills were not oh, yeah. sufficient to, yeah, yeah. to get into the workforce at a higher level of... The so-called marginal workers. Exactly. Yeah. So you, you bring more marginal workers in. They are low-skilled by yeah. and large. They're not, they're not you know, people with great skills sitting around waiting for mm. a job. They are low-skilled or unskilled workers. Uh, who are suddenly cheap enough yeah. to employ. And as Treasury explained to Costello, that will reduce productivity because these are not the most productive workers. You said Wayne Swan earlier. Oh, sorry, no, Costello. Peter Costello. Yep. Yep. Sorry, apologies to Wayne. Um, so Treasury explained that, saying, look, if you, if, you, if, you, if you basically lower the price of labour, then you'll get less productive workers. Now, that, as a policy goal, that is actually, that may well be fine. Mm. Because you, know, you want you're increasing, workers to get into you're the You're increasing participation. You've got these people who probably, you know, they, they're, they're probably long-term unemployed or mm. often You want to get them back into the habit of working, you know, before you even you want to you start giving them skills. So this is arguably, you know, a worthwhile policy goal. It's nothing to do with productivity. No. Uh, and productivity yet, but, but there is this sort of fall, blurring yeah. of, mm. of uh, issues by, uh, by advocates of, of workplace deregulation to say, that workplace deregulation is a cure-all. Yeah. It'll fix everything, but, but you can't fix everything. You can't have higher participation and higher productivity. Mm. Not in the short no, term. No. So, and, and, and people say our wages are too high in Australia and therefore we can't be productive. But productive, labour productivity is GDP per hour worked. There isn't a wages figure in the denominator. It's mm. per hour. So if your GDP is growing and you're um, faster than your hours work, your productivity um, is growing. Mm. But it, it, it seems strange that people argue that the reason that we have less than satisfactory productivity is that wages are mm. too high. No, I mean, it's got nothing to do with it. It's, it's got nothing to do with it. And it betrays the real uh, incentive at work here. And that is that business uh, are actually looking to... Uh, to deregulate uh, the labour market in order to increase uh, profit. It's not about increasing productivity. Mm. It's about increasing profit. And there's, there's this, you know, it's, it's this old what's good for US deal is good for yeah. US. I mean, there is this mindset amongst business that if it's good for my bottom line, it's good for the, the nation. Good well, for the nation. it's not. Yeah. I saw some uh, international comparisons for the years that you've just referred to, the most recent years. and. Uh, amongst developed countries, Australia is outstripping mm. other developed countries in productivity growth. You wouldn't know it from the debate that we see in the daily business mm. newspapers about how it's terrible here, but it was good before. Mm. And in fact, as you point out, multi-factor productivity growth went negative mm. in 2004, 2005. That's when work choices came in. Mm. Now, if people want to say, industrial relations is the source of productivity growth, then this is a damning indictment on work choices. Absolutely. absolutely. I mean, yeah. the case against work choices in terms of productivity, I think is pretty much sealed. You know, it, it clearly, uh, Treasury predicted it would it would cause 
uh, fall in productivity. Mm. Fall in productivity happened. Uh, and we went back to a, a, we returned to a quote unquote more regulated uh, IR framework under Fair Work Act. We've actually had an increase in, uh, in labor productivity. So, you know, as, a, as an, the whole productivity argument is, is just, is, is, is riddled with self-interest at best, uh, like better words, probably greed, and a willful refusal to, to acknowledge uh, the facts. I said, now, the, 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 an interesting issue is, and, and economists will debate this, but what's the relationship between the Fair Work Act and, and the overall IR framework and the increase in labour productivity? Did it cause a, an increase in labour productivity or was it just coincidental? I suspect what's driven the increase in labour productivity over the last 18 months has been the Aussie dollar. I reckon the, you know, the, uh, yeah. in the trade exposed areas of the economy, yeah. uh, a lot of businesses have said, you know, bloody hell, we are up against it yeah. and we need to do something. And they've sat down with their workers and, you know, made, found ways to actually increase work, workplace yeah. productivity, yeah. you know, at, at, the, at the business level. At the business level. And this is the thing about productivity. Governments can't come in and wave a wand and say, you'll be more productive. Mm. Yeah. It's up to businesses, yeah. managers and workers to actually... Well, well you're not alone here because uh, Phil Lowe, um, Deputy Governor of the Reserve Bank, has made the same point. Uh, he started writing about a first kick-up in productivity about two years ago and wondering whether it was a flash in the pan because the, the, the figures jump around yeah. a lot. Yeah, all time. And then over the last 18 months, he's been saying, you know, I think it's here and it's, perm it's, it's not temporary. Mm. And it is because of the competitive pressure exerted by the high Australian mm. dollar, exactly the point you're making, mm. that businesses say in order to stay alive, we're going to need to do things better. They work out ways of doing things better, but it's not really... So long as the industrial relations system doesn't stop them mm. from doing that, and evidently the Fair Work Act has not stopped has them not, from there, doing now, there have been a couple. There have been a few areas where... Uh, the previous government's Fair Work Act review, it was a you know, re re review after two years, but nonetheless, uh, fair enough, found some areas where it, there, there, were, there was a case for reform. And mm. um, that was fair enough. Uh, for example, I think that one of the issues is Greenfields agreements. Yeah, very, very, sure very, very complex. Yeah. So yes, framework can always be reformed, but the basic sort of tenant, which is you know, that, 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 that uh, there, there has been a sort of attack on productivity by the Labor government, mm. which is simply a complete fiction. And it's, yes. you know, as I said, it's driven by the fact that business have this idea that uh, if they can cut wages, they can increase profits. Well, and, uh, we've and discussed two fictions here, one that climate change isn't real and that there's actually uh, a global conspiracy mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and a fiction about um, the impact of uh, industrial relations on productivity and in and, and the last couple of years, as you're pointing out, productivity growth has actually risen. Um, it's been a fascinating discussion and we could go on for hours, but I wondered if I could uh, finish with this question, uh, Bernard, if there's one thing in the world that you could change, what would that be? Mm. Uh, Tuffy, I mean, I'm, I'd, uh, one feels tempted to kind of, you know, talk about fixing world hunger or, you know, addressing the systematic oppression of women or... Uh, any of those sort of big things, but what I would change uh, if I, you know, if I ruled the world, would be I would make sure that we had an education system that um, gave our kids the basic skills of critical, sceptical thinking that um, that uh, will stand them in good stead in seeing through 
uh, or seen clearly in a very, very contested world. Um, because we've been talking about climate change, we've talking about productivity. Um, how do you see through the change? You know, how do you how do you know well what's really happening with the climate? You know, what, yeah. what, without without becoming a climate scientist, how do you know? What are those basic skills of critical thinking that you need? Well, you know, if, if you know, what's the prudential position? What is prudence? What is, what, you know, what are the what are the basic tools that you need to navigate your way through a very contested environment in which so many self-interested people are saying let's do one thing or the other. So many self-interested people are saying uh, things that don't that aren't true. Yeah, equipping young people with the skills to see through the bullshit to. Uh, to approach every sort of issue sceptically, but rationally. Yes. I think that would in the long term deliver us, you know, a lot more benefits than, than somehow, you know, coming in and magically waving a wand and, and trying to fix all sorts of problems from above. Um, having faith that people actually can apply reason effectively and in a, um, you know, in a transparent way. That's, uh, that's what I'd change. Well, it's been a pleasure having you on MO Forum, uh, certainly enlightening on two big fronts, uh, climate change and uh, including the direct action plan and the economics uh, of productivity growth, both very uh, contested mm -hmm. areas. And uh, your final remarks there, I think, are poignant because what you're doing through that recommendation is empowering people to make their own assessments rather than rely on um, the filtering mm -hmm. of information through particularly the mainstream media which has strong editorial positions on these sorts of issues and people just get to read it and then either dismiss it altogether or believe it's true, the latter being more worrying than the former. Mm -hmm. Thanks very much for joining us on MO Forum, it's been a fascinating discussion. It's been my pleasure, thanks for having me. Thanks Bernard.